Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for a biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. This time, researcher and co-writer Tamara Payne, with her father, the late award-winning Newsday journalist Les Payne, Tamara co-wrote The Dead Are Arising, The Life of Malcolm X, published by Liverite in October 2020. From her home in New York City, Tamara Payne and I talked via Zoom, and I asked her how the title of this National Book Award and Pulitzer Prize-winning biography was tied to the Nation of Islam and Hartford, Connecticut. It actually came out of uh, letters that Malcolm was writing to Elijah Muhammad while he was organizing the Hartford Temple. And that chapter is really interesting in the book because it, it shows Malcolm and what he would have been like as a leader interacting with his group there. And it's kind of away from the culture of the Nation of Islam. But, you know, of course, he had the Honorable Elijah Muhammad's permission to organize that temple. But he would write to the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, not just there, but in all of his work. He was writing all the time to just give him updates about what was going on. And so what he wrote in one of his letters about Hartford was that they had some obstacles there because Hartford in particular was a very Christian town. The Blacks were very Christian oriented there. But he said that they were making progress and that the dead there were rising. And that changed it to a rising because it just really connotes more of the movement, the strongest sense of the movement of coming into consciousness and making that change and transformation. And then even in that chapter, it just becomes a metaphor throughout the book. Because when you look at how the nation of Islam would refer to people outside of the nation who were not members, they were considered the dead. And when they became, you know, members, they were arising. You know, they were accepting the teachings of Elijah Muhammad and your role as the original black man or Asiatic black man, as, as they were uh, talking about that. Right. You worked on this book with your father and, you know, people would say, wow, working with a relative or a parent <laughs> on a book of this magnitude about a figure who is so iconic had to have its twists and turns. So what was the partnership like working with your father? I would say in the beginning, it was very much, you know, mentor, student, and he was always my mentor, I mean, throughout my life and even at the end. But, you know, in the beginning, it was there was so much I, I wanted to learn and I just looked up to him. And as I started to work with him, a lot of the things I thought there was such a mystery to me was no longer a mystery. And it was hard work <laughs> and learning how to do research. And, and it's like, it's no longer like, how does he know all of these facts? And then you're like, oh, okay. We read the books, we talk to people, we hear the stories. And then you find out these experiences are not uncommon. And then you realize that adage, you know, that information is powerful and having knowledge is really important and, and it can answer a lot of questions and, and save you a lot of heartache. So I was learning that over and over again throughout this process with my dad. But working with him, for me, I was interested in becoming a journalist. And I was actually, when I started, was looking at journalism programs, you know, mm. 
And when he told me, you know, that he, he's going to do this book about Malcolm, and I had just come back from spending two years as an English teacher in China. Mm. And when I came back, he had done these interviews with Malcolm's brothers, Philbert and Wilfred Little. And he was just so fascinated by what he learned. And he just said, this is so important. This is so important. We need to know this. And I said, are you talking about doing a book? And he said, yeah, I think it's going to have to be a book. And before that, he never thought about doing a book about Malcolm because he felt we already had what we needed to know from the autobiography and, and the speeches. But we didn't know about Malcolm the person and what he was like growing up and what his relationship was with his parents and his siblings. And dad felt that we needed to know this because that's really where you're formed. Even when you're having sibling rivalry, it helps you in how you deal with your rivals in the outside world and you're right. in, the, in the professional world and in your friendships, you know? So you learn a lot of this at, at a young age and understanding that Malcolm went through this and, mm -hmm. and what he learned and what he came away from and then how these relationships progressed as he got older. So when in the nineties did he first interview uh, Malcolm's brothers? 1990. Okay. Yeah. What prompted the focus on the brothers? He was visiting his, his very good friend, Walter Evans, who was a surgeon at the time in Detroit. So they were hanging out and, and he, he knew the brothers and he said that my dad should meet one of them. And he introduced him one dad interviewed him and, and for several hours, he said, I want to tape this and the brother agreed to it. And then he came back to New York and talked to Gil Noble, who's who had his own show called Like It Is, and he would do annual shows about Malcolm and what Malcolm was to us, as well as the assassination mm -hmm. and trying to understand what happened there, right? But he knew of the brothers too. And he asked my dad, which brother did you speak to? My father told us Philbert. He said, the one you should talk to is Wilfred. So dad went back and he spoke to Wilfred and Wilfred was open to speaking to him. This is again in, in 1990. And, and I was in China at the time when he did these interviews, but I came back for a holiday and he had just done it. And he was just toying with it in his mind, like what's going on here. And that's when I said, you think this is going to be a book? And, you know, he had kind of decided that, that he was going to indeed do that. You know, and we also knew that Spike Lee was working on a movie mm, um, right. about Malcolm X at the time. So, and he said, yeah, he said, but this is really important, you know, and dad is a journalist and, and it's just watching his mind thing. And for me, you know, and, and at that time, we weren't even talking about me working out because I, I had to go back to finish my semester in China teaching. But when I came back home permanently, he actually brought me home because um, I was actually thinking about staying. <laughs> so he said, no, I want you to work with me on this. I said, really? And I, again, was starting to also think about looking at grad schools. And I said, you know, it's dad. I mean, like, I knew what the kind of journalist dad is. He was writing his columns. He was, you know, appearing on Sunday edition here in New York. But as a writer, as a reporter, we would talk about writing throughout, you know, my life. And, and I've always admired him. But here's a chance to watch him practice his craft, like how he would prepare for interviews. This was an opportunity that I don't think would come around a lot. So mm -hmm. I said, yeah, let's work on it. Neither one of us expected to go on this long. I mean, we understood yeah, that. How many years are we talking about? We understood that writing a biography full-time usually takes about a decade. Mm -hmm. He had many jobs at Newsday. My brothers were still in college, so my parents still putting them through college. So, I mean, it wasn't like he's going to take off and just do full-time on this. Right. Because I was working too. And then the internet wasn't what it is today. So I would have to actually go off and go to University of Wisconsin to look at papers. I go to the FBI 
J. Edgar Hoover building to go look at some of those files. And to me, it was exciting. I mean, I loved it, you know, going in to these different libraries, National Archives and Library of Congress and just going to these different, and people were like, you're going where? <laughs> um, you know, there are a lot of myths and inaccuracies and of course the truth that surround Malcolm X, his life and his accomplishments and his philosophies. So what did you do in, in your research process to try to figure out the difference between fact and fiction? I mean, look, that as a journalist and, and, and the discipline of journalism is, is just different from doing, you know, regular historical research. And you take the research, obviously, and you're using that, but then you, you want to talk to people who are also on the scene. They may have seen things or they can tell you things or they know of people who are also in the scenes that journalists at that time or historians had not spoken to over the years. Mm -hmm. And that's where you really start to see the difference. And then you have to look at when you're speaking to different people, how the story, is it changing? Is it growing? And you really have to learn how to follow the story as it goes along. Obviously, with people's memories, sometimes that's faulty. They may be conflating some, you know, facts. So how do you really deal with that kind of... You try to get as close to the date as you can through double-checking on the dates. You ask what else was happening on those dates. Check the newspapers around that time. We did a lot of that. And then you also check with other people. You just kind of say, what was your experience? And then just keep trying to get as much information around it as you can. Like I remember one situation with um, Rosalie Glover. Rosalie Glover was the woman who asked Malcolm to meet with her friends in Hartford to start the temple in Hartford. She had died by the time we were doing this book and dad interviewed with her daughter, who was her namesake. And she was telling us the story about why they moved from Florida to Hartford. And it had to do with this lynching with A.C. Williams. And this man died in her mother's arms. And my father asked, do you know if this was reported? She said, it was just a lyncher, you know? So I went to go look and see, and I actually found it in several places. Mm-hmm. So that was able to fill in the details of what happened, what the newspaper accounts were, because they were giving other perspectives of it, but also gives us dates. Okay. How were you able to get some insiders or other insiders in the various organizations or places that Malcolm lived and and interacted with? How were you able to get some of them to talk? Like, for instance, members of the Goon Squad, uh, as you call it, um, the folks who were part of the team that assassinated Malcolm. One member that Dad had talked with, he had left the nation by the time dad had talked to him and he was talking about what his experiences were. Several people we had spoken to, they were, some of them were still in the nation, but in particular, the goon squad, you know, some of them had already had left the nation, but you know, they were talking about what happened at that time. And they didn't leave necessarily because of that, they left for other reasons. But I'll even go back to talking about the couple that Malcolm lived with when he came out of jail. Mm. He started living with Wilfred, and then uh, Malcolm was upsetting that household too much. So Wilfred found this other couple who were happy to take him in, the Husseins, Mustafa and his wife. And they were happy to talk about what Malcolm was like, you know, when he was living with them. And to me, it was information that we had not really had to that detail. For example, what we picked up on was the jealousies of Malcolm early on when he entered the nation. Everybody would talk about the jealousies when he was leaving. But his energy and his focus and his discipline and and recruiting younger people, 
but also educated people. And that was clashing with the working class people that were already members. Mm. And so the jealousies that that was bringing in, you know, it was starting when he came in. Mm -hmm. What about family members? Uh, Did you get a chance to interview, say, Betty Shabazz or anybody on his wife's side of the family who would uh, provide maybe another um, portrait of his personal life? Betty knew who dad was and was very much aware of his work. And I actually had the opportunity of telling her that we were working on this book. It was actually in China at the uh, Fourth World Conference of Women Issues and that was held in China. And I met Dr. Shabazz there and I let her know, you know, that I was Les Payne's daughter and told her about the book. And I told her I didn't want her to hear this from anybody else, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, because I knew she was, she was a very private person, but I wanted her to know, you know, that we're not hiding anything, but we are doing this. And I know that my father had reached out to her, but she's a very private person. And it's, it's up to her really to, to have decided whether she wanted to talk to us. And, and it didn't happen because soon after, a few years after that, like on and on. I mean, when dad was ready to talk to her, he had reached her, out to her again. She had died soon after that. Oh, okay. You know? Right. Your father indicated early on in, in the book why he was taken with Malcolm after hearing him speak at, at a college lecture. So that was his entree into who this man was. What about your relationship with Malcolm X? It starts through my parents. Mm. Um, my dad used to play Malcolm a lot when I was growing up. And I used to hear his speeches. And so, I mean, at five, I didn't understand what a ballot was, but I certainly was getting that in my ears. And, the ballot or the bullet, huh? Yes. <laughs> yeah. And the message of the grassroots and all of that. So I was learning about just hearing the language. And when you just, it's amazing how, you know, all of that kind of comes in. And it's not just rhythm, but the way he's looking at it, it really kind of sinks in. It's part of my background. And dad was talking about a lot of stuff. And it's just amazing to me, even like what some of the things dad would talk about during that time. We're talking in 1970s. He's a young reporter. He's going up through the the ladder of Newsday. And this is after he won the Pulitzer for his work with the the heroin trial. He he won that in 1974. And um, heroin in the 1970s was the drug of choice of young white teenagers, particularly on Long Island. And that became a important story because they were dying in high numbers of overdose. Mm -hmm. And dad also wanted to know, like, how is it coming in here in our communities? Because it wasn't that we were growing it. So he wanted to find where is it coming from? And and they traced it from the poppy fields of Turkey through the French connection, how it's coming into our borders and into the veins of the teenagers. And dad really also wanted them because it was a scourge of Harlem. It was a scourge of Black communities also. Mm -hmm. But also there were other stories he was working on, like the forced uh, sterilization of young black teenagers, the lifestyles of migrant workers, you know, on the East End. Because this is a Long Island newspaper, there, a lot of these stories are localized. But then he also, in, in 70, I think it's 76, he finds Patty Hearst was kidnapped by the Symbionese Liberation Army. So he's going across the country and he's doing his own reporting. And that's the other thing. When you're a journalist, it's a lonely job. You have to find your own sources. You have to find your own story and you can't share with other journalists, you know, because they'll take the story. Because again, it's about being first, but also being right at that mm-hmm. time. It's like mm-hmm. getting it as most accurate as you can be. And these were the things that I was learning from my dad. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. let me let me ask you, talking about the book, 
the dead are rising. Your father died, unfortunately, before the book was completed. So what was the state of the manuscript at its passing? And then what role did you play in making sure that the manuscript was complete? Well, I was doing a lot of the research with my dad and working together and putting the manuscript together. And so we were talking a lot about where the direction the book was going, where there might be loose ends. And we were working together side by side on that. When he died, he was starting to go into editing process. And editing is a whole different whole other world. <laughs> <laughs> and I wrote the epilogue, I wrote the introduction, and the, the manuscript was done, but like I still had to fill in different parts of the book where we needed to expand more. So my role in the, is really in reshaping that manuscript into you know this book form that we have. Were you given a page or a word limit uh, from your publisher? I think in this case, because we're talking about, this is the last work of dads of Less Pain. The publisher, in particular, the editor who was on this book, you know, he he understood the specialness of this book and he, he admired dad a lot. So it wasn't about shortening it and wanting less words. He was like, this is his last work. We want to do it as best as we can. So now... The editing process, how long did that take you since that was your main concern toward the end? It felt like endless. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I I never stopped focusing on the book. When dad died, my thing was, this book is going to be published and he's not going to be here. When did he die? 2018. Okay. So very soon after he died, after the funeral, you know, not long after that, I started immediately just dealing with that until 2020, so two years. Mm -hmm. How were you able to deal with that? Because, you know, you're also dealing with grief. I didn't grieve. I put it down. I pushed all of that down because my focus was getting this book out. We were so close with him here to having it finished. And the funny thing is, I remember dad saying to me, even earlier on when I was thinking about going to a, a graduate program and he said to me, oh, you know, we're, we're going to finish this book. And if you're in a graduate program, you're not going to be able to be available. And you really should see how a book is like that process. You need to be a part of that. And I said, okay, you're right. And 30 years later, I ended up doing it by myself. <laughs> well, not by myself, but without him. I mean, I had editors, you know, when you're doing books, as you know, the publisher comes with editors then you want to have your own editors. I mean, it's 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 a team. Right. It's it's not a one person thing at all. And not surprisingly, because your father was a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and a great writer, his ability to take this information and make it readable. How did that influence you in terms of you know your own writing? This is where we just had the best conversations about writing. I mean, I, I really do geek out with these conversations. <laughs> about language, description, starting a scene, whether it's in the middle of a conversation, making it look like you're doing a movie, like you want to describe the room, you want to describe how the sun is hitting the shutters and how it hits a suit or a piece of jewelry and how it changes that. And and so when you put in those types of descriptors, you're really bringing your audience in, almost as if they are experiencing it too. And the ability to do that in writing is it's, it's a gift, you know, but it's also hard work. And how do you do that? You can read other writers, which is something that dad and I would talk about reading other writers 
you know, and I have a lot of favorite writers, you know, like Toni Morrison, Dora Neale Hurston's are some of my favorite. But, you know, when I look at, for example, when we talk about transitions, I look at Mark Twain. Why? Because Mark Twain, to write a transition from, let's say you're taking from a scene and then you want to focus in on what a person's thinking. You can do it if you're a less experienced writer and it can be very jarring. Mm-hmm. But you can also do it in a more natural way. And, and it's just a simple movement or a twist of a phrase to shift the perspective from outward speaking conversation to inside somebody's head. And it's not just changing the font from italicized to regular you know, font. I mean, it's, there's a way of doing that. And, and I feel that Mark Twain, who I also look at as one of the first really real American voice writers. And dad and I used to talk about this too. He was writing the American vernacular mm-hmm. and in real time documenting the end of slavery. And, and I look at, you know, pieces like put in head Wilson, for example, when he says things like this woman who's one sixteenth black, that one part has a more important vote than the other 15 parts of her. One sixteenth black, who knows what one sixteenth black person looks look like. like. <laughs> right. But, what he's showing is the ludicrousness of Jim Crow laws, right? And, and, and slavery ideas mm-hmm. of how you're identifying people who, if they weren't in the dress of a slave and have their hair covered, which is straight, mm-hmm. you wouldn't even know that they were black. But yeah. yet, because of this one drop, he wrote stuff like that all the time. So I turned to Mark Twain when he would do that. He did that masterfully, I thought. But there are other writers, you know, who who also did it too, like Langston Hughes. Like oh, yeah. I love his essays of mm-hmm. I Wonder as I Wander. I mean, it's a great book of essays about traveling around the world. And of course, because I was also traveling, I loved reading what he saw. These were kinds of the conversations we were talking about, like, and how you pull from that and how you're learning, like in, within music, like you can hear, you know, a few bars of a song and say, hey, that's Prince hey, that's Michael, you know, hey, that's, you know, so-and-so, you know, and it's the same with writing. You can read a few sentences and you say, not knowing who the author is, but that's in the style of, and dad and I used to do that a lot. That's great. Now, (laughs) do you have any recommendations for how someone who is either interested in or currently involved in working on a biography of an iconic figure? It's really just trying to find as much information you can about, starting with just researching the times, researching the newspapers of the towns that they were in at that time. It was like, you really want to get the environment. And this is the key about this book. When dad talked about doing a book, biography of Malcolm, he didn't want to just do, he lived, he died, he did, you know, he did these great things. He said, look, I want to look at Malcolm in the context of the family he was brought up in. And so hence we get to look at his parents and the relationship. His parents organized for the UNIA. The UNIA, for people who don't know, is what? The Universal Negro Improvement Association, which was Marcus Garvey's organization in, at the time that they were organizers for. And they were traveling. They met at a UNIA meeting in Montreal and fell in love. And they moved down to Philadelphia and they had a child. And then they started as organizers moving to towns where there weren't a lot of organizing for Black people and try to organize those communities and organizing them as far as just talking about being proud of who they were as Black people in spite of all the Jim Crow laws and attitudes that were surrounding them. If you look at even the opening of the book, when they moved to Omaha, Nebraska, where Malcolm was born, you know, it was in 1919 when there was that horrible lynching of, of Will Brown. 
and they call that the Omaha incident. But they moved there actually around 1921 after already having Wilfred and, and a couple of other children. And so they stayed there for a few years. And when Louise is pregnant with Malcolm, the, the local chapter of the KKK visits them. And that's how we open up the book. So it's like, this is the world that Malcolm's being born into. And that really wanted people to understand that Malcolm didn't just spring out of nowhere. And in this book, we're trying to present Malcolm in the context of the world that he was born into. So you can't look away from the history. Mm -hmm. Was there any particular information that you were surprised at learning that hadn't shown up in any of the books or writing about Malcolm or that Malcolm wrote himself? I don't know about surprise. I mean, I think that there were things that you just said, okay, now I understand why certain things happen. Like for example, when Malcolm talked about meeting with the Klan at the end of his life and nobody knew any real details about it. Getting the details of the other person who was there and his and the wife of the other person who was there, and I'm talking about uh, Minister Jeremiah Shabazz, was a major coup for us. Mm. And honestly, like I knew about the details of that meeting since like 1995. And this is why it's hard for me to answer that question because it's like, I was learning so much, I was excited. And then it's like, you see things being portrayed about Malcolm, you know it's wrong, but I can't say anything because it's got to come out in the book, right? <laughs> but I have to also give credit to my family who, even when dad was alive, believed in us. And definitely after he passed away, they were supportive. One of the tasks that I wanted to make sure I, I accomplished with this book was making sure that my father's voice and his life's work rings throughout. People who worked under him, I get letters all the time from them saying, I hear him. Excellent. You did a great job in making sure that happened. That was Tamara Payne, researcher and co-author with her late father, Les Payne, of The Dead Are Arising, The Life of Malcolm X. This award-winning biography of the charismatic and controversial Muslim leader known as Malcolm X was published by Liverite in October 2020. This interview was recorded via Zoom on July 16th of this year. To learn more about Bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Enzo De Palma created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a wonderful day. Thank you.